Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we are going to hear about Josephine Butler Gray, 1828 to 1906, discussed by Helen Pringle. So thanks so much, Helen, and over to you. Ah, thanks, Joe. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is a book by jo Josephine Butler called The Constitution Violated. And um, Josephine Butler, I... I She's known by Josephine Butler and everybody calls her that, but her um, birth name was Gray, so Josephine Gray, so that's why I put Gray there. Um, I wish if I put jo uh, Josephine Gray, I guess no one would know who I was talking about, but anyway. Um, and The Constitution Violated is a book written in the context of the Cont Contagious Diseases Acts in England and globally in the 1860s through to the 1880s and past that globally. Um, the Contagious Diseases Act, and I'll explain what they are about, which will give you a good picture of what, what Josephine Butler was um, writing against and, and for, but they were fundamentally concerned with the regulation of, um, I'm, I'm hesitating a bit here, because I'll tell you why in a second, but they were fundamentally concerned with the regulation of prostitution. Um, around army and navy bases in England and elsewhere um, globally. But um, as you'll see with Josephine Butler, she said this isn't about uh, this isn't about the the regulation of prostitute prostituted women or pros I, I'm going to use those interchangeably. Um, uh, it isn't about that. It's about the regulation of us all. Um, so uh, one of the things that will come out of the talk, I think, is how. Um, when we talk about prostitution, don't let anybody tell you that you can't speak, um, that only people in prostitution can speak. Obviously, you know, we are um, lost without having survivors of, of the prostitution um, system speak, but we too can speak because this is um, regulations about prostitution hit us all. Um, and I'm talking about us as women here. Um, so in that context of prostitution, I'll try and explain some of those those things that I just mentioned. In that um, that that context of prostitution, I wanted to alert everyone, everyone here first, that the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and Girls, Reem Al Salem, has just put out a call for submissions on prostitution. She that's her word. She doesn't use sex work, which is an immediate clue to where she's coming from. Um, Rimal Salem is the rapporteur, the special rapporteur for um, violence against women and girls. She's been there since 2021 and long may she be stay there. We spend, I think, a lot of our time being gender critical these days. And I'm speaking for myself and for others as much as um, as as it affects them, so much of our time and our energy and our passion is taken up with the immediacy of the threat to us from gender ideology and its proponents. I don't mean to underestimate that reality and I don't mean to underestimate the gravity and the urgency of that threat, but we've lost a lot of time and in terms of other um, other questions and issues that we we are concerned with and should be concerned with. And the time, I would say, has never looked as auspicious as it does at the moment for addressing the prostitution system. In the context of um, the European Parliament um, resolution, which followed on from the 2014 resolutions of the European parliamentary bodies, um, but also in terms of having Reem as the as the special rapporteur um, and in line of the light of various changes around the world. So um, if 
anybody who wants to um, join us in writing a submission or just wants to write a short submission of their own, um, it's two thousand. The maximum is given as two thousand words, so it's not very long. Um, and even if you just write a little short, um, a short note, I think quantity as well as the quality of the analysis, if you like, the quantity really counts, and it shows support for um, this question and support for Reem Alsalem, who is, I would say, perhaps not the most popular person in what is called special procedures at the UN, which includes the rapporteurs and also the independent experts. So um, that's just a little bit of a um, thing I'm throwing in because it's, and it has to do with what, what I'm talking about today. Um, about two books ago, I talked about um, John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor Mill. And I just note again that Mill in his later years was involved in, in two large popular campaigns. One was in favour of women's suffrage, the vote, and the other was against the Contagious Diseases Acts. Very little scholarly attention has been given to Mill's stance on prostitution or his opposition to the Contagious Diseases Acts. And there are some really dumb things said about Mill and the Contagious Diseases, the CDA, I'll call it. We could be thinking, or we could be forgiven for thinking, um, for example, how good it was that there were women opposed to the acts at all. Um, but um, that, of course, we all know in inverted commas, it was because the little ladies who opposed prostitution were religious Puritans who had a moral or a moralistic opposition to the institution. That's not the case with Mill. It's not the case with Harriet Taylor, and it's not the case with just Josephine Butler. Um, Josephine Butler was a religious person, um, although she had a very complicated, I would say, relation to established religion. Um, uh, but um, I don't think and certainly she didn't say that religion was the basis of her opposition to prostitution and its regulation by the state. In fact, it's a very incomplete, if not completely false picture to say of the women's movements in the late 19th century and early 20th century that they were opposed to prostitution because of some questions about um, disease, about diseased um, persons and bodies and so forth and about the immorality um, in religious terms of prostitution. I'm not saying it's wrong to have those, to have that um, opposition to prostitution. Um, there are many, many things to be against prostitution um, for um, and many grounds on which one can be um, opposed to prostitution, but it's not my ground and I think it's not a ground that we will ever, if I could put it as crudely as this, that we will ever win. We will never win the abolition of prostitution on if we confine our protests to religious grounds. So although, as I say, although Josephine Butler was um, counted herself as a religious person in many ways, that wasn't the basis on which she argued against prostitution. If we look closely at the opposition by women to the Contagious Diseases Acts, there was a principled opposition to prostitution and its registration, uh, sorry, and its regulation by the Contagious Diseases Acts in terms of analysis of prostitution as a systemic and systematic violation of the principle of personal liberty and as a discriminatory abridgment of the security of that principle. So this is one of the first things that I'd say is that a lot of campaigns these days um, in terms of pornography, prostitution and so forth are put in terms of public health campaigns. Um, so I know that a number of people who I've worked with in the past and um, and still count among um, colleagues and friends 
for example, refer to refer to pornography as a public health issue, as an urgent public health issue. It may well be, but that's not my position against it. Um, and in the case of Josephine Butler, it was not her view that um, prostitution was primarily an issue about health. Obviously, she was very concerned about the health of women in prostitution, and in fact, she um, devoted much of her time and um, money to caring for women who prostitution had literally killed or would literally kill um, uh, in the sense of their health. But her primary aim was to cast, and her primary achievement, I would say, was to cast prostitution as a political issue, that it was an issue which affected the constitution of the state um, and that that was the main line upon which she argued. It was the basis of her opposition, both in terms of what she wrote and in terms of what she organised, which um, was um, after after a time, um, the, the International Abolitionist Federation. There's, I won't talk about her organisational efforts in relation to prostitution, um, but she was the head of two very important organisations and the International Abolitionist Federation, particularly in its links with France, was one of the things that France um, called upon in constructing its program of um, taking steps towards the abolition of prostitution um, under, um, under uh, a person who's now retired as the Minister for Women. But I think it's really important to, to grow those that international um, aspect of, of the movement against prostitution again. It's not something abolition can't work in one country alone. Um, it's better than nothing, but uh, it needs to it needs to be an international movement of women. Um, what um, Josephine Butler did that was so extraordinary, whether then or now, was to tie the analysis of prostitution to the foundation of the state, to talk about it as a constitutional issue and as um, as an unconstitutional issue. So the book I'm going to address is called The Constitution Violated, which was published in 1871. And on the third slide, which is not the second one, sorry, um, Joe, on the third slide, there's a there's a URL for The Constitution Violated, um, there, uh, which is an essay by the author of the, um, the memoir of John Gray, that's her father, and it's dedicated to the working men and women of Great Britain published in 1871 following the Royal Commission, the Commission into um, the Contagious Diseases Acts. Um, it's a coherent and an innovative argument. Um, it's not by coherent argument, I don't mean that it makes sense. I mean that it's not just a series of opinions. It's an, a well-worked-out argument that I think should be taught in political philosophy, political theory classes at university, along with Marx and Freud and whoever else that we, we usually teach, going back to Plato and Aristotle and so forth. Um, it's, it has an emphasis on a conception of full citizenship and a commitment to an equal exercise of the privileges and bearing of the burdens of citizenship. So what I'm first going to do is to sketch the background or the context of the Contagious Diseases Act. I'm sorry, up to this point, you might be wondering what they are and where they came from and where they ended up and so forth. And I'll mention the Royal Commission upon um, the Operation and Administrative Administration of the Acts, which had um, which heard evidence in 1871, the same year that the Constitution violated, was published in the wake of. Um, it 
I'll draw out its central threads and assumptions as to the legitimacy, the Commission's central threads and assumptions as to the legitimacy of the state's licensing of prostitution. And then I'll address Butler's framing of the prostitution of women, not as an issue of individual freedom or of choice or of health and hygiene and so forth, but um, rather as a, as, um, as a question of justice. Between 1869 and 1886, um, so while this book was published, Butler was the leader of the Ladies National, um, Ladies National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts and a founder later of the International Abolitionist Federation, as I mentioned. Um, so, first of all, to talk about prostitution and the Contagious Diseases Acts and the British Army. The context within which Butler explored the question of prostitution was the debate over the Contagious Diseases Acts after 1869. Many um, male writers about this time and about Butler and about Mill, for example, fall rather easily into the common, very easily into the common stereotype of Victorian moralism expressing itself in the language of sex and purity um, in the way in which the work of the historian W.E.H. Leckie did, for example, L-E-C-K-Y. He, Leckie wrote a, a notorious and much quoted passage um, in his two-volume work. He wrote about, and he expressed, I think, a view of prostitution which was very common at that time, and I would have to say it remains very common even though it's not usually put in quite these terms. Leckie writes, he says, I'm going to write about the mournful figure of that unhappy being whose very name is a shame to speak. What he talked about of prostitutes, as he called them. He said, the woman who is a prostitute is herself the supreme type of vice, but she is ultimately the most efficient guardian of virtue. Except for her, the unchallenged purity of country of countless the happy homes would be polluted and not a few who, in the pride of their untempted chastity, think of her with an indignant shudder, would have known the agony of remorse and despair. In other words, what he's saying here is that um, the prostitute looks like a terrible figure of vice as distinct from virtue, but in fact she safeguards the virtue of all the other women and of the household. Um, it's a it's a shameful picture, but I think it's um it's a it's still a story. I think that some people even still tell tell themselves to these days, and one of the ways in which they tell it is that they say, if we didn't have prostitution, there would be much higher rates of sexual assault. If we didn't have prostitution, there would be um the men who uh men would rape um would rape women as if they say that as if. Um, women in prostitution aren't women at all. They're something else, objects. Um, and what they what they mean by that is that prostitution acts like a sort of safety valve for the virtue of the of the good women, the wife and the mother, the faithful wife and the faithful mother, for example, the chaste um, woman. And as long as men have this outlet for their uh, whatever whatever it is about them, um, then. The rest of the rest of women are safe. So we should look at what he's saying is we should look at prostitutes, prostitutes in his term, rather like um, the holy harlots. So, you know, they do this task that nobody else can be you know found to do, which is to protect, protect everybody, protect all the other women. And so we should be grateful to them. There's that picture of the holy, uh, the holy harlot really sort of reflects 
again, the necessity and the inevitability of prostitution, um, not merely that it's existed forever, but that it, there was a good reason that it existed forever. In that context, the so he Lecky wrote that um, just uh, in the 1860s in the, in the context of debates about um, questions of prostitution. The Contagious Diseases Acts were designed to address the problem of the sexual health or were said, rather, to address the problem of the sexual health and hygiene of the British Army and Navy, the Royal Navy, in and around the garrison towns and ports. If you, I've just made up a, a second, the second slide, which is you might remember um, from Pride and Prejudice when I think it's Lydia, who's the youngest, um, Bennett daughter, makes off with or he makes off with Mr. Mr. Wickham, um, who abducts her and takes her off to one of these one of these um, zones that that the army and uh, that the military inhabited around around Britain. There are about sixteen of them, I think, and they extended sort of I don't know. They extended about ten miles outside of the actual encampments of the of the military. Um, and you can see the unscrupulous Mister Mister Wickham in that way. Um, in all, um, four acts were passed by the British Parliament respectively in 1864, 1866, 1868, and in 1869. There, what's also significant and what's often forgotten is that similar acts were passed by the British Parliament, um, uh, sorry, were, were enacted um, throughout the empire. For example, the 1864 Cantonments Act and the 1868 Contagious Diseases Act in, in India. In Australia, there were similar, um, similar passages of legislation. Colonial um, colonial precedents were in fact important for British domestic laws. So, um, and some historians argue that it's important to understand the British Acts, uh, the Contagious Diseases Acts, in the wider imperial context of the regulation of prostitution. The repeal of the British Acts was done was finally done in 1886 and was achieved after the efforts of um, an organised opposition emerging around the late 1860s led by women's groups whose prominent figures included Butler, as well as Harriet Martineau, Florence Nightingale, and um, they organised newspaper campaigns, parliamentary petitions, large public meetings. They couldn't vote, of course, um, and various other sorts of um, ways of, of opposition. Um, when Josephine Butler heard about the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts in England, she wrote this. She, she said... I feel inclined to do as Oliver Cromwell, as Oliver Cromwell did when he saw poor King Charles lying dead. Um, Cromwell just took hold of the head of of King Charles and shook it a little. This is in sixteen forty two, whatever. Um, later, he said, "She said um, Cromwell just took hold hold of the head of of Charles the uh, the first, shook it a little to be quite sure that it was loose from the body." She felt rather strongly about this about this question. Um, even even at that stage, I think people were still people in England still didn't um, really talk about the death of the the execution of King Charles the first. Um, they didn't talk about his execution in quite so um, happy terms, if you like. It simply wasn't done. Um, many people at that time still called still called King Charles a martyr. 
When the acts were, when the Contagious Diseases Act, Diseases Acts were passed in the 1860s, it was widely thought that around one third of the military defenders of the empire had contracted venereal disease. And the most common explanation was that this had come about through the intercourse of soldiers and sailors with what were called prostitutes. To address that problem, as it was framed in 1864, designated doctors were tasked to examine any prostituted woman, actually any woman suspected of being a prostituted woman with venereal disease, after which she could be detained in a lock hospital, which is a kind of detention centre for up to three months and if found to be infected um, for longer uh, and she could be detained in the lock hospital with no right of appeal or recourse to habeas corpus, no trial, no nothing. Um, and you'll find that the notion of the importance of habeas corpus um, is emphasised by Josephine Butler. The 1866 Act, um, the third of the Acts, further set up, uh, second of the acts rather, further set up a force of what were called medical police um, to patrol the stipulated areas and to require any suspected woman so they could just be stopped on suspicion of being a prostitute and on suspicion of having venereal disease, um, any suspected woman to have fortnightly genital in, um, inspections for a period of up to a year after that. Um, I think sometimes when you sort of think about inspections in that way, people can um, lose the sense of how invasive, how humiliating and how painful um, these genital inspections were. Um, Josephine Butler called them steel rape. Either she, Sometimes she called them steel rape or surgical rape, and she meant it in every sense, literally, I think, in terms of its painfulness, its humiliatingness, its lack of consent, every every kind of criterion that we that we talk about when we talk about rape was came into that into her view of what these genital inspections were involved. It was she talked about how the body of a woman could be entered in this way without any kind of um without any agreement on her part at all, um, and in fact, that qualified as a form of steel rape. Um, other women took up that that phrase as well. One of the things that strikes you about when you read the con the Constitution violated is um, what I would say. I I wouldn't use this term, and I don't think anybody here listening would use this term either. But was the you might say was the indelicacy of um, Josephine Butler's language. By indelicacy here, and I don't mean that as a in any sense as a criticism, but by indelicacy I mean that her language, the way that she talked about this problem, the way she approached it was considered to be indelicate and unladylike at the time. It wasn't fitting for a woman to speak like this, but she did anyway. So the act of the act of 1869 also compelled the last of the acts compelled prostituted women to be um, registered and to carry official registration cards. The acts all involved the surveillance and supervision of prostituted women, or again, more accurately, of women about whom the police had a suspicion on that account. In other words, and she Josephine Butler points this out. Every single woman was subject to the strictures of these acts. The acts didn't simply apply to prostituted women. 
because any woman could be suspected of of um of VD and of being a prost- uh, being a prostitute, and they could be apprehensive apprehended on the sole sus- suspicion of one man and subjected to medical violence, as she also called it. She had a a rather um she had a a a, a very vivid sense of the of the ways in which doctors could perform the work of the violent work of the state. There was no, um, there were also, there was no similar surveillance of either military or civilian men. And in fact, as Josephine Butler herself pointed out in the acts, there was no, the, the, the acts didn't actually refer to, even though they were said to have been invented in order to deal with military men. In fact, there was no reference to that as the, as the motor of the acts. So she points out in the in constitution violated that you would expect these acts to have a kind of preamble, which said in light of the disease and prevalence of venereal disease amongst military men, but they didn't have that at all. And this points to her view that these acts were not simply directed at the practice of prostitution, but they were directed more generally at a form of control over the population in particular, control of of the population through the control and surveillance of women. Um, Sometimes I think we use those terms surveillance too too lightly, too broadly, but in fact that was the term that that, um, people used at the time, both for and against the acts. They talked about it as a form of surveillance um, and obviously as a form of control, of surveillance control. Another term that was often used at the time was espionage. In other words, that the the es- that the surveillance over women was a form of espionage. And so, for example, um, as I'll mention in a minute, when the when the commission, when the royal commission into the acts came into play, they actually talked about um, they would if a if a witness at the commission said, "Well, we should um, we should apply surveillance to men as well," the members of the commission said things like. You can't really be suggesting that we should have espionage of the men as um, uh, of the men who visit prostitutes as well, um, and so they often use those terms. They're not my terms, espionage and surveillance of this. So, what the acts did was to set up a very um, a very complicated and very arbitrary, or could be very arbitrary, um, basis for surveillance and supervision of women in general, and of the population more broadly as well. In 1870, the um, and leading on to 1871, the British Acts were the subject of review by a Royal Commission. The Royal Commission was composed of 23 men, um, no women, including members of parliament, clergy, and scientists. The modern philosopher Jeremy Waldron, who's actually quite a decent sort of fellow, um, usually, describes the, describes the Acts, um, which were the subject of the Commission proceedings, um, in these terms, um, he described in very favourable terms, or I would say idiotic terms. He said, there is no doubt that the measures of the Contagious Diseases Acts were well intended. They were part of a general progressive movement. To, I'm sorry, I can't say this without laughing, but I mean, he's obviously saying this in in um, very seriously. He says the Contagious Diseases Acts were um, well intended, they were part of a general progressive movement to improve health and hygiene in British society, as well as the armed forces, allowing the practice of medicine to play a larger role in public policy making. Honestly, 
The opposition of women like Josephine Butler was developed and voiced publicly within the context of an organised movement of women opponents and of men. First of all, a, uh, an association had been set up of men against the Contagious Diseases Act, and then that was transmuted into a into a movement of women's women opponents. Although that movement of women is frequently portrayed as a again as a Wowserish social purity movement. Um, which is a portrait pioneered in particular by the historian Judith Walkowitz, who you should avoid reading. She doesn't say anything useful. Their position was formulated in protest against male sexual violence rather than as a defence of women's sexual purity. So don't let anybody tell you that um, that the women who were opposed to the opposed to um, the Contagious Diseases Act and to prostitution in general were um, were about the purity of women. Um, they they were actually opposed to male sexual license, and I'll explain what they meant by that in a second. The Royal Commission proceeded on the basis that prostitutes, as they put it, um, as the term they used, were responsible for the spread of venereal disease and hence for the weakening of the defence of the realm through its effects, through the effects of VD on the health of its defenders. Throughout the hearing of evidence, as well as in its final report in 1871, the Commission did not think at any time, did not consider at any time that the category of prostitutes might include men. So they didn't men didn't come into the into the picture, and nor did it focus at all on the male buyers of sex, what we would call the buyers. Um, this explicit gendering of the problem of transmission of venereal disease through prostitution was the most for the most part taken as a given by the supporters of the acts, but was one of the chief criticisms raised in the evidence given by its opponents, like Josephine Butler. The 1871 report of the Commission noted this aspect of the evidence offered, um, and they dismissed any such concerns as they had throughout the hearing of evidence. So they said very, and this is a rather well-noted passage from the Royal Commission's report, Volume 1, they said, many witnesses have urged that as well as on grounds of justice as on expediency, soldiers and sailors should be subjected to regular examinations as well. We may, and the Commission said, we may at once dispose of this recommendation so far as it is founded on the principle of putting both parties to the sin of fornication on the same footing and we're, we're going to rebut that suggestion that the, that the users and the and the women are on any of the same footing, but they say because we'll mention the obvious but not less conclusive reply that there is no comparison to be made between prostitutes and the men who consort with them. So it doesn't actually say they buy them, it's as they consort with them, it's men consorting as they do. With, with the one sex, the commission said, with the one sex the offence is committed as a matter of gain, and that's with women. With the other sex, men, it's an irregular indulgence of a natural impulse. And who can blame them, <coughs> these men? That inequality in sexual footing, as they put it, as, as in terms of footing, was simply dismissed as natural. The irregular indulgence of a natural impulse was what men's consorting with women is about. 
John Stuart Mill gave evidence to the Royal Commission in May 1871, and he set out the foundation of his opposition to the acts as a matter of principle and not, say, in terms of their abuses or individual um, effects. He, for example, said, I don't consider the acts justifiable on principle because it appears to me to be imposed, to be opposed rather to one of the greatest principles of legislation, the security of personal liberty. It appears to me that the legislation of this sort takes away the security of personal liberty almost entirely from a particular class of women intentionally, but um, incidentally and unintentionally, one may say, from all women, because inasmuch as it enables a woman to be apprehended by the police on suspicion and taken before a magistrate, and then by that magistrate she's liable to be confined for a term of imprisonment, which may amount to six months, a year actually, by refusing to sign a declaration consenting to be examined. So if you, as a woman, you refuse to be consented to be examined, to be steel raped, then you would be um, detained for a further period until. In, and that's that's part of Josephine Butler's um, protest as well. That's part of her claim against the Contagious Diseases Act as well, that it is um, that this is a, a, a violation of the security of personal liberty, or sometimes she talked about a violation of the principle of personal security. In other words, and it was a, a discriminatory violation that um, men were never examined. Um, there was no mention of, as I said, of, of men as, as prostituted, but there was no it struck the commission as completely ludicrous to even propose that um, men should be examined as well as well as women. Men still hold that view. Um, you can find in the in cases of of um, assault and sexual assault in in brothels today in Australia, for example. I'm sure you can find them elsewhere as well of men who claim that they should not have to undergo any kind of examination. Um, in order to consort with women. I'm going to take up that, that word consort from now on and just talk about that's what that's what prostitution involves. The law, um, but it was, so it was fundamentally and at its heart a discriminatory imposition on personal security. The law was one-sided. It was inflicted on women by men. It delivered over a large body of women intentionally and many other women unintentionally because they could be arrested on suspicion to insulting indignity at the pleasure of the police and of the of the doctors um don't think for a moment that doctors were kind of were were or are necessarily um men who took no pleasure in in this in their part in this in these examinations it, I mean, I think one of the things that comes out very strongly in Josephine Butler's work throughout and her work on medicine more generally on medical men is the um, is the way in which gynecology was uh, something that men took a particular interest in for not entirely scientific reasons, if I could put it like that. I don't mean to tar everybody, every doctor with the same brush, obviously, but um, there was certainly uh, in Australia medical men, for example, took great delight in treating Aboriginal women, Indigenous women in Australia in certain ways, and they they pretended that they were scientific. Um, sorry, getting back to Josephine Butler. In fact, the the Contagious Diseases Acts instituted a state 
um, Josephine Butler said, with the genuine characteristics of tyranny. And she was very concerned at how her, the British state or the English state, was sliding towards tyranny and away from um, a condition of, of, um, uh, of genuine of genuine respect for the for the the principle of personal liberty. In fact, the acts um, uh, the this line of argument that Josephine Butler um, proposed made use of themes in regard to civil life, primarily such as the security of the liberty of the subject and the discriminatory violation of that of that um, of that liberty as raising the spectre of tyranny. So her analysis is not tied to a gender-neutral conception of fairness, but to a consideration of the gendered assumptions, or uh, not to a gender-neutral conception of justice, but to a consideration of the gendered assumptions that the Contagious Diseases Act reflected and which they also constructed and buttressed. So it wasn't just that they reflected discrimination in other parts of society, but they were part of the discrimination. I would draw out of Butler's analysis that she sees the Contagious Diseases Acts and their system of espionage and surveillance as part of the institution of prostitution. In other words, they weren't simply a regulation of the practices of prostitution or of acts of prostitution. Rather, they were formed the state licensing system for prostitution. It was similar to what was operating in France at the time, which would be subject to similar criticisms as the um, Contagious Diseases Act. And if you think state licensing um, and state regulation of prostitution has ended, uh, come to New South Wales. Um, it's <laughs> This is a state that I live in. It's considered to be um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the models for de decriminalisation of prostitution, both in Australia and the world, um, but uh, in fact... The, the system of regulation and licensing is um is uh sorry um is a is an an essential part of a of a um system of prostitution that um presents itself as as decriminalized um that's what sex workers work involves that you would try to regulate prostitution um in ways that would um assimilate it to uh, um, to non-similar non forms of work. Um, any regulation by the state actually acts as a, as a license to the vice of prostitution. So we can't say, well, that was the Contagious Diseases Act in the 1900s, in the um, 19th century rather, and but things have changed now. It's, um, and I think this is the, the point of Kat Banyard's book, um, the pimp state is that any system of the regulation of prostitution involves the the state as a pimp, um, as acting the part of the pimp. It acts as a license to the vice of prostitution. The state's provisions of securities um, for prostitution, for the protection of prostitution, licenses the availability of women and um, clean women, um, such that the state acts and and stands in the role of the pimp. The, like the panda state, you could call it, or the pimp state, whereby the state acts as a procurer in raising an army of prostitutes alongside um, uh, the the general army as well, um, and to serve the, the purposes of, um, at that time, the official standing army of men. Beyond that, beyond that um, 
historical context, the state acts so as to license a form of um, not only to license the the setup of state prostitution, uh, the setup of prostitution rather, but also it acts to license to give a license, a kind of permission, to a form of male sexuality that is presumed to be natural, the regular satisfaction of a natural impulse. So rather like a driver's license today, it's kind of here's your permission slip. Um, this is your license. You don't have to use it. Um, you know, you only have to, you just have to have it with you. It's always there. It always allows you to um, to do your worst. Um, it's your kind of your man's license, the male license. So the elements here that um, in terms of licensing, and I think licensing is such a good word there because it has these different meanings, the, the license of giving free reign to things but also giving a permission um, like a, a written permission or a written permission and sometimes unwritten permissions as well to do certain things um, on the basis of what your sex is. The elements here are that um, these acts, the Contagious Diseases Acts, as Josephine Butler points out, were not really about questions of health and sickness and disease at all, which was the framework that the Commission members were eager to bring home to all of those who gave evidence to the Commission. The regulation by the Contagious Diseases Acts of, of this disease and this venereal disease alone invoked questions of subordination and the naturalisation of subordination, making subordination natural as simply a fixed feature of the sexual landscape. Prostitution falls on women as a penalty of sex, as a penalty of their sex, who are then made to pay like a super tax because the acts that are that position women's desires in terms of responsibility for the existence of prostitution and of prostitutes and place, place a certain type of women as beneficiaries of prostitution. What I mean by that is that we should really be, we should really be so offended and so outraged by the way in which women are made to feel that they, that their safety, their integrity, their dignity, that women who are not prostitute who are not in prostitution are made to take a position that they should be grateful um, to women in the prostitution system because they have they have paid the price for our safety. Of course, just because they've paid the price doesn't mean that we actually are safe. Um, that that wouldn't be um, that would never happen. Um, but uh, nevertheless, we are um, women are uh, positioned in that sense, made to feel, and I don't mean made to feel in that sort of sense of he made me feel this. I mean, we are put in a position, a sentimental position or a, a position of feeling in which we should be, we we um, are required to be grateful for the price that others have paid for our, other women have paid for our um, safety and comfort. So what state regulation of prostitution becomes, and and I think we should all be outraged by that. How could we? How can we bear to be in that position? Um, it's not a position that we asked to be in. It's not a position that um, we ever sort of thought would be a good idea to be in. I don't think, for the most part. But nevertheless, um, it's a position that we're put in, regardless of what we want. So, what state regulation of prostitution becomes is a form of licensing and protection of practices of inequality. What appears to follow from this understanding is that the contagious diseases and acts themselves form part of the institution of prostitution, with the state acting as a pimp and procurer. 
Josephine Butler's criticism of the state regulation of prostitution centred on their discriminatory impact on the personal liberty of women and their licence that they gave to the sexual liberty of men. So the acts don't, as, as Butler pointed out so acutely, I think, these are not merely acts. These are not, the acts were not merely measures to, um, to deal with the army and the navy. They were measures to deal with the civilian population, the whole population, and their the, their license to the sexual liberty of men. So the acts don't simply reflect, but establish a gendered hierarchy that allocates sexual prowess to the one end, to the one sex, and chast chastity plus vulnerability to the other. That's us women, all all presented and dressed up to look natural, as if what could be more natural. Um, made up to to look natural and to look natural not only to the men who benefited it from who benefited from it but to women as well we take for granted that that's what and and women still repeat that um i know so many women who still will tell you that prostitution is inevitable in other words natural the gendered social hierarchy of domination and subordination rests on and performs itself through the licensing of the unruliness of man's desire to say that's just how men are, so we'll license it. We'll give them a license, um, the basis of prostitution. And just as it places some women as under inevitable suspicion, it puts other women in the position of safety from the unruly sexuality of men. That general line of argument here is that prostitution is not a profession that's chosen by individual women, but a social institution, a part of which is the very law that regulates it. So it's not that you have the system of prostitution and the system of regulation and licensing outside of it. The system of prostitution includes, the prostitution system includes the licensing and the regulation. It's a system that deserves injustice to be swept away at its basis because it's not simply a series of discrete harms by individuals who consort with other individuals. But as Butler points out, it's a violation of the central principle of legislation and of justice itself, the principle of personal liberty secured in its equal enjoyment. So for her, the institution of prostitution involves a gendered inferiority assigned to one class of people considered subordinate relative to another class of people who are considered to be in the rightful possession and exercise of sexual prowess. Um, if I can put it very crudely, they are licensed, men are licensed to consort. In other words, they are licensed to fuck. Um, to summarize, prostitution in this view is a form of inequality that has no connection at all, or little connection, if any, to natural differences, whatever they might be. As an institution and as a set of individual practices, both, it's a hierarchy that is constructed fostered and protected by law in both its punitive aspects, steal or rape, and its educative aspects. By educative, I mean prostitution is a pedagogical institution. It teaches us, everyone in a society, lessons about who we are and who we're not. It sets up, and here's, here's where I'm going to finish in terms of what it sets up for Josephine Butler. It sets up a constitutional framework within which people lead their lives form their desires and make their choices. It's not just a part of our cultural institutions or whatever, our entertainment institutions um, in that way, but as some have called it, but it's actually part of the constitutional framework of a society. It's that deep within which people um, lead their lives, they form their desires and make their choices. 
It's a kind of form of sentimental education that teaches women and men about their desires and their propensities. The use of law to license prostitution, law and laws, was a violation of this central principle. For, for Butler, was a violation of the central principle of legislation itself, the security of personal liberty. So this is the point where Josephine Butler went further, though, and this is what I want to finish with. For her, this is not only a question about law, laws and legislation, but about the British constitution. Um, I would say at the beginning, I know that a lot of people say that the United Kingdom does not have a constitution. What they mean by this is that it doesn't have a written constitution. Every state has a constitution. It's its makeup, what makes it what it is. Um, even when the British constitution doesn't have a written constitution, it, it actually does have a written constitution when people say that, although not in a single document like the US constitution with its various amendments. But in every state, in every country, even those with a written constitution or basic law, like the Grundgesetz in Germany, there is more to its constitution than written documents. I'm a political science scientist by trade, and this is a bit of an obsession of mine, but I'll save you from that for now, is that every state, the shape of a state is its constitution, the ground rules, the basic law. So in England, people often used to talk about the ancient constitution, and what they meant by the ancient constitution, very few people still do, but what they meant by the ancient constitution was the foundation of the British state. And what they meant was the fundamental building blocks of the system of government, but also of politics and of social and cultural rules and guidelines. Josephine Butler isolates one principle of that constitution that's foundational, which is personal security. And what she does is to argue that prostitution as an institution, tied up with its regulation by the state, undermines the very basic principle of the ancient constitution, which she argues that we should beat a return to. We should go back to the ancient constitution, see what principles are there, and then resist the changes on the basis of that. I'll just finish with that. Butler quoted from Lord Chatham to argue that Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, and the Bill of Rights form that code which is called the Bible of the English Constitution the basic law. The present state of dealing with that code, she says, was reducing in particular English working men and women from being free, reducing them from a state of being free to a state of slavery. Um, if you remember, she had been involved also in the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade and its incidents. She says the object in terms of the Constitution violated, she says the object of the Constitution violated, that book, is to set forth the unconstitutional nature of certain recent acts of the legislature and the danger arising therefrom with the view of arousing this country to a sense of that danger. In other words, she identifies the, the Contagious Diseases Act as in breach of the, of the Constitution, as unconstitutional as out of whack with the, the basic principles of the of the ancient constitution. The acts, she says, reduce women to the status of slavery. She says these acts virtually introduce a species of villainage or slavery. And she continues, I use the word not sentimentally, but in the strictest legal sense. I use the word slavery in the strictest legal sense. It means that condition in which an individual is not master of his own person. And the condition of slavery is defined she says, in Magna Carta, by the omission of all slaves from the rights which that charter grants to everyone else. 
um, and concludes, she says, there could be no more complete, galling and oppressive deprivation of freedom than that which takes place under these acts. So again, there's that sense of what she's saying is these are, prostitution is a political institution protected by political instruments, by law, by political, by laws made by a legislature. It's not an outcome of some natural something or other in that way, but it's a political institution and the resistance to it needs, which is the word she uses, resistance, needs to take a political form as well. Um, she talks about this, what has happened here as um, a crisis in the Constitution of England. She says this is a crisis as great as any crisis through which this nation has ever passed. This country, she says, was once called upon to decide whether it would permit the king for his satisfaction to override the 39th clause of Magna Carta, which deals with um, right to trial by jury for those who are accused of something, and it decided most emphatically that he should not. Our country is now called on to decide whether it will permit Parliament itself for the sake of the lusts of certain men to override this same clause, this same guarantee of personal security. Um, so what she's and what she argues for in that basis, I'm sorry, I've run out of time. I'll, I'd have to give you volume two of, of Josephine Butler at some point. But she talks about the path of return to the to the ancient constitution, which is a path of resistance. Um, and um, when she speaks, she later says in another work of hers that finally the slave speaks, um, that finally the slave who are preeminently women in the setup of this constitution, um, they are now speaking and they are now speaking loudly about the importance of a political resistance to um, uh, a political resistance to um, a state of tyranny on the one hand and of slavery on another. Um, they're not words that people should throw around lightly, slavery and tyranny, and I think she knows that and uses them very um, carefully in that respect uh, to to urge upon us all um, that path of resistance. And I guess that's the conclusion that I'd reached is um, ladies resist. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and thank, thank you very much, Helen. That's good. We've got um, a couple of minutes left, but I think um, it, it was a brilliant discussion. So let's leave it there and we'll invite you back to do more, Josephine Butler, if possible. Oh, I'd love to. Great. <laughs> um, every, I, I would say that if you get a chance to read Josephine Butler, she is so... Uh, you. You, you feel so strong when you read her. You know that you can't, um, uh, you can't read her, her work without feeling. Um, I I don't like the word empowered, because of the way that it's used and misused. But geez, I I feel so empowered when I read her. You know, I feel so strong, and so, and as if you know we we when we draw on the women who've come before us, we gain so much that we, we don't if we just by ourselves. Great. Well, thank you so much, Helen. And there's breakout rooms for 
those who could go to them. And otherwise, next week, we have got the Dale Spender book um, coming up. I, uh, so there's always been a women's movement in the 20th century, 1983 by Dale Spender and discussed by Dorothea Anderson. So hopefully see you next week or in the breakout rooms. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks. It's a privilege to speak to everyone here.